Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today, this is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hest. to a very special episode of Trojans Wired, the podcast, which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. You can listen to this podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple, and all the other places where you get your favorite podcasts. So folks, uh, you might know that our producer, Ian Hest, does a fantastic job producing this show every week. Uh, you, you might be aware that he's a Miami alumnus, Ian. Yeah. I, I am a, a very proud Miami alumnus, the, a very proud Kane. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll start it off by, by saying USC is a heck of a team. Um, knew that it was going to be a, a very tough game. Uh, this is probably uh, the, the, the height of University of Miami basketball. Um, suspended operations of, of the team in 1971, uh, before I was even born, and came back in '85. And Miami's not known. Miami's known for football, and baseball. They're not known for basketball. And um, a, a lot of years watching this team at the old at the old Civic Center. That uh, you know at the old Miami arena, which no longer exists. The, the Miami heat started playing basketball in 89. That was when I was born. So, um, grew up, uh, you know, as, as I learned playing on the, you know, just playing pickup games, uh, and Miami style basketball just grew up with those teams that played at the old Miami arena. I remember when they beat, Rip Hamilton's UConn um, when they went up against Tulsa in the Sweet 16 in 2000. Um, I was 11. Uh, and, and just you grow up with all of this. So the, the, the Shane Larkin team uh, that should have gotten better than it, that it deserved, like it deserved more. Miami never wins that USC game. And I don't know if that'll make any uh, – sorry, I'm going to try and keep it as together as I can here because uh, Sunday was extremely emotional for me, that Auburn game. And I hope that we get to it. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. We'll focus on USC. Um, th- this team never does this. They always lose that game. And I don't know if that'll make USC fans feel any better or worse. 
Uh, it might make them feel worse. I don't know. Um, but this team always loses that. And they've done it for years. And to be in this spot is, is uh, and in, just as someone who I remember when I was head of Haith's Faithful and Frank Haith was giving me pizza when I was camping out in front of a Duke game when I was 19 years old. Um, it's been a long, long time since I've seen this team accomplish what they have just done. And uh, it's it, you almost don't know how to feel because you you don't know what this feeling is supposed to be. So um, we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, but yeah, right off the bat, it's it's uh, I, it's almost like crying with laughter and uh, really special. So thank you for giving me that little diatribe to uh, explain how how truly special this is for those of us who um, I mean, at least grew up with Miami basketball. I, I remember when it was midway through the second half and just thinking to myself, anybody who's ever played on a street corner, any game in their entire life in South Florida, growing up here, um, how it looked, whether, whether you thought foul calls were right or wrong, whether you thought it was dirty or not, whether you thought the fast pace was good or not, whether you, we're yelling at your television because the Canes couldn't hit a three-pointer. Um, it looked like every single game that has ever been played on any street corner in, in Miami history. And from, from age three to age 33, every kid has played that game that they played against USC. So it wasn't just that they were able to get it done. It was the way that they did it. It was very, um, very pure, very true to the style of, of this area and what this community goes through. And that made it even more special. So with that, I will, I will let you, uh, kind of, uh, go through the motions. Um, I'll, I'll try and explain it and we'll have a conversation as best as we can. But, um, that, that was, that was, um, one of those sports moments that you will definitely remember for the rest of your life. And I, and I wanted you to have the floor at the start of this show so that you could give full expression to what that moment means for you as a Miami alumnus, as someone who lives in South Florida, who cares about not just the, the school more broadly, but about the basketball program. And that's really, a, you know, that we talked a little bit about that last week, Ian. Uh, and I know that USC fans listening to this podcast, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about spring practice and Lincoln Riley before too long, but like, this is a week to kind of put a bow on, on the basketball season and also to recognize you, Ian, because, you know, you do a great job with this podcast and, you know, you, you have Miami in your bones and marrow. It's part of your blood. It's part of your identity. It's part of your, it's a big part of your life. Definitely wanted to congratulate you and, and just express appreciation for, you know, having this, this satisfying life moment. And, you know, well, thank, thank there's, you, a, Matt, there's a connection to you. USC here. There's a connection to USC here in that yes. it's not just being proud of a school. It's being proud of the basketball program, you know, 
being have, being a basketball program at a school which is so steeped in football culture that is a very specific kind of thing because it's like loving the child who, you know who gets ignored it's loving it's like loving an orphan and and, and yeah. you know, see, seeing the pain and the loneliness and the abandonment uh, of of that orphan and then being able to see that orphan you know blossom into a wonderful human being that that's really what this is like and and USC fans USC basketball fans I should clarify can relate to that because we 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 don't have these moments very often that's why the elite 8 last year was so special it was the first elite 8 for USC in 20 years it's the first elite 8 I mean the second elite 8 since 1954 so those moments don't come around very much for USC and of course to bring this now to Miami Miami will be playing for its first elite eight ever against Iowa state uh, on Friday in the sweet 16 in Chicago, the Midwest regional semifinal. So like that would be a first in the entire history uh, of Kane's hoops. So this is something that USC fans can relate to. It's not just rooting for a team or for a school. It's rooting for that specific program, which has so often been ignored or minimized or diminished and doesn't get very many moments like this. That's part of the emotional weight that, you know, you very legitimately carry like this is, this is real. It's honest. It's an organic part of your journey with Miami hoops. I imagine that when you saw Leonard Hamilton, take that team to the sweet 16 in 2000, where it lost to a uh, future Kansas coach, Bill self, when self was still coaching Tulsa, you know, maybe you thought as an 11 year old, hey, this is going to be what life is going to be like. But then it took 13 years to get back to the Sweet 16. And it went through a lot of valleys, a lot of frustrations. Uh, you, you know, you learned as you grew up, as you uh, became a teenager and went to high school and then and then went to the U. Uh, no, this is a life of hardship and struggle. This is not a life of success following Miami basketball. So to now arrive at this point, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it has to be a profoundly emotional thing for you. Oh yeah. There's a couple aspects to it. The first is, is when just to, to button that is like, there were a lot of during that Shane Larkin year, um, there were a lot of lonely times at a, Buffalo Wild Wings in Lincoln, Nebraska, all by myself on a Tuesday night because that was my weekend trying to catch the game. Uh, so that like that that's strictly what brings up the the immediate memory. Um, from a USC standpoint, you know, I was thinking about it before, you know, while I was doing my research for for recording today and and what we were going to talk about. I was looking back at some of the old podcasts. And I remember hearing that joy in your voice uh, last year when USC was going through the run that they were and me trying to, to as the producer, kind of coax that out of you, try to, try to find where that was and, and just to hear that. And, and I self-reflected and thought, you know, what, it, do I have that same feeling, that same sense of excitement? And Miami, oh, I, I, I said this on the pod last week, was Miami wanted USC, uh, for better or for worse, they wanted to level themselves up to what USC had done. They wanted to compare themselves to them. 
And, and so there is that sense of uh, climbing whatever goal you wanted to achieve, the perennial underachievers compared to your other, you know, classmates, they, they sit in those, in the, in the same athletic center as the football team, they sit in the same athletic center as the baseball team. Uh, and so they, they've always had to, uh, to be judged by their success in that regard. And I, and, and no disrespect to the, the women, they, they held their own against number one, South Carolina. This is a USC podcast, so we won't talk about that, but like that, that has never really happened. And, and so um, for USC to see them fight as much as they did, that was, was great. It was a great battle. And we, from our end, loved every minute of it. We wanted that fight. We wanted it. And so because it's so, the kind of fight that you hadn't won in the past and you wanted to get over that threshold. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly. And and I think that that USC should be like really proud. I, I don't I don't want to say like you, you don't need our respect, but you earned it whether or not Miami is like cocky enough that like you have to earn their respect. But that was a game where, all right, like we wanted to test ourselves up until the, the precipice and it was a foul call away from either way. And, and that's sort of cool. And so we can come to blows again and do it respectfully and, and so from a Miami perspective, that's kind of cool. We kind of like that stuff. I don't know if USC likes it. Um, I've never lived in LA, so I, I don't really know. But I, I think that Miami, from a Miami perspective, uh, earned, like, like USC earned their respect. I think, I think USC definitely respects what Miami did. And, and of course, I think the, that Miami beating Auburn convincingly added to the idea that, hey, we didn't lose to a bunch of chumps. We lost to a really good team, which might make the Elite Eight and certainly has a chance to play its way into the Final Four. Like if Miami does play Kansas, let's say that's the Elite Eight matchup. Those two teams win in the Midwest semis. Like Miami has the guards to, to beat Kansas. There's no question about it. Uh, it's not, it's, you know, you look at the seeds, it's what it would be one versus 10, but that's not David versus Goliath. This is not a juggernaut Kansas team. And it's a team that's playing reasonably well, but, uh, we've seen so many better Kansas teams, uh, over the years. And, you know, of course, Jim Laranega, you know, he knows what it's like to beat a number one seed in a regional final to make the final four. He did that with George Mason took down a a really loaded UConn team in 2006. So this Kansas team compared to that UConn team doesn't even, I, I, I hesitate to say doesn't exist in the same league, but maybe that's debatable, but it's certainly a few notches less talented than that UConn team. That UConn team was an absolutely loaded team. Uh, so, you know, I think Miami has a great chance to get to the final four. Of course, first things first, let's make the first, uh, elite eight in school history, but uh, to connect it back to USC, um, you know, the Trojans respect Miami. And I think the, the thing that makes it easy for the Trojans to respect Miami is that, you know, Andy Enfield is so good at recruiting defense and length and size, Anyeka Kongwu, Evan Mobley, 
you know, Drew Peterson is a big rangy guard. Chavez Goodwin is a, is a long, you know, tough forward, but you know, what USC still needs as a program, like this is the next step for the Trojans in their evolution as a basketball program. They need these, these monster guards, monster, not in terms of physical size, but monsters in terms of, and I say it affectionately and as a, as a, as a compliment, monsters who just take over games, they control the tempo like Auburn, you know, Bruce Pearl loves to throw a full court press at opponents. And with Charlie Moore and Isaiah Wong and Cam McGusty out there, Auburn could not pressure Miami. <laughs> the, the, the Hurricanes are pressure proof, you know, in terms of handling full court presses. You can't do that to them. They are built to totally shut down uh, that particular defensive tactic. Um, Ari Russell, a, a Miami guy and an analyst I, I follow, um, he, he does some podcasting that I listen to. He noted that uh, Miami uh, has turned the ball over only seven times in these first two wins over USC and Auburn, created 31 turnovers. That, that's just insane. But it comes back to having guards who can just completely protect the ball and can take it away. Ch- uh, Charlie Moore himself has seven steals. Right. Uh, right. Two games. That's as many. That, 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 that number of steals, seven, is the same as the amount of turnovers Miami has committed through two whole games. That is nuts. But it speaks to how guard play takes over at the tournament. It's where USC is lacking. And so the Trojans uh, completely respect what Miami has because that's something USC needs. That, that, that's really uh, how and why USC uh, fully respects Miami and the achievement the Hurricanes made. Not just the win on Friday, but then winning over Auburn to, to affirm the point that USC did not lose to uh, a mediocre team. No, this is a really, really good team that, you know, started slowly early in the season. But much like North Carolina, in you know, in the ACC, uh, the ACC, you know, didn't put its best foot forward for a long time, but the ACC's uh, teams definitely grew and improved continuously in through mid and late February on into early March. It's kind of like the Pac-12 last year with UCLA, Oregon State, and and the USC Trojans. They, they might have wobbled at various times during the season, but late February, early March, and on into the tournament, they, they improved. Like they, you know, and and that's really, I think, a thing that gets lost in all this. Ian, is that you know, in mid February, you might think you have the book, you might think you have the inside read on teams and their identities, but that's not the final story. There's still that final set of chapters in the final leg of the season. You know, you can imp- you can improve in early March. It's like it's not too late to improve. There is always a next game to be played. There's always a next practice. There's always uh, the, the, you know, the, the ability come tournament time to find your identity. Maybe it took you a while, but you can still find it. Uh, like a, outside the ACC, as an ex- a historical example, 2014 Kentucky. You know, that was mm-hmm. the team that you know, was pre- preseason top five, but had an absolutely terrible year, had suffered a terrible loss to South Carolina and many columnists were writing John Calipari's obituary, you know, at that time, because remember Kentucky made the NIT in 2013, didn't even make the NCAA tournament, 
So then this loaded team in 2014, it just stumbled around for a lot of the season. Uh, couldn't even tie its shoelaces at times. But end of February, early March, all the things that it lacked put the pieces together and made the run uh, all the way to the national championship game. So, you know, that that's, that is to a certain extent what uh, North Carolina and also your Miami team have done within the context of the season. You know, Miami lost a couple games to Florida State, and I know that there were bad calls. Uh, USC fans know all about bad calls uh, at the ends of games, but but nevertheless, Miami and Florida State were at different places in their developmental arc. Uh, in January, teams change, identities change, and it's never too late. You know, as long as you're still playing, it is never too late. Uh, to fully find your identity and Miami has, you know, played two fully realized versions of what it is and what it can be as a team. And if that fully realized version uh, continues to show up in Chicago this weekend, could, we could be celebrating a Miami Hurricanes final four. Well, so it's funny because when I was listening back to what we had talked about last week, and I told you this um, was that I thought, any team one through 11 could win this region and the Midwest. Absolutely. And, and that, and, and that, and that always struck me as reasonable because Kansas is not a juggernaut. We saw the weaknesses with Auburn's guards. We know that Wisconsin gets into rock fights in the NCAA tournament and it can go cold, which is exactly what happened uh, against Iowa state. Providence was an upset pick. Now Providence has looked good, but Providence was still an upset pick. And of course, Iowa, the fifth seed hasn't made the sweet 16 since 1999. So yeah, the top five seeds, th these are not, these were not heavyweights. And you, you know, when you made that point, I don't recall if I said anything in response to that point, but internally in uh, this is not revisionist history internally in my mind. I mean, I definitely felt, yeah, like that, that's absolutely a possibility. And you, you were a hundred percent right. Well, which is, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about Miami too much, but because but I think that they're in that the Iowa State matchup is problematic for them. I think that the Providence matchup is problematic for them. I think that if you're a Miami fan, you would probably weirdly prefer Kansas. But that's another podcast. Um, what, what I would say from a USC perspective is to see what happened with Boogie having to be taken out of the game like what happened in that second half um, and, and how that managed to get them back and where they see themselves moving forward. Because I respect Andy Enfield. He got it wrong to start and he figured it out later. And well, what that, did he, what did he get wrong to start? I'm not, I'm not doubting you or disagreeing with you. Just wanting to flesh out that point. So the the he thought that his bigs would be better than Miami's five out and four guard play. And he he thought that if he could get the ball inside, they wouldn't be able to swipe at it and, and get moving like they were. Right. Like when it was I think it was like 24 to 17 on that big Charlie Moore steal, um, something like that, that like they thought that they could get inside and quickly get that hook shot 
to that Miami, like we talked about, Miami would not have an answer for that. They weren't able to get the hand check right. And once he took Boogie off and went extra big, and that, it, that facilitated it easier. He was able to do that more. And that made it, that, that opened up the three-point shot. They wound up being able to do that. Listen, Miami went one of 14, I think, from three points. So this wouldn't have been as close if Miami had made any of their three-pointers. South Carolina, or South California, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, made like nine three-pointers. So the fact that they were able to do that really extended the game, kept them involved in the action. 18 turnovers to three often does not produce a free throw contest at the end of the game, right? Like just logically. So where he fixed it in the second half, they were down, I think it was 31 to 20 at half. Yep. The, the fact that they were down that much and were able to just, I guess, negate Boogie out of the game was weird because they haven't really done that ever. So that had to be uncomfortable for them. And, and to figure out where they were going to go, how they were going to find their offense, took very long for Isaiah Mobley to get into his offense. Um, and, and so th- those sort of things, if I was a Trojans fan, would feel confident about because it seemed even though it wasn't the the correct outcome for them it seemed as though they were able to recognize what was happening to them and adapt and succeed in that process whether or not they were able to ultimately climb that hill that they had already dug them in is a different conversation but that is where i find you know confidence for next year and moving forward all right, so we're talking now about the USC Miami game, you know, in full, uh, you know, and now that like our retrospectives and our fan experiences, you know, that that formed the poignant opening segment of the show. Now that we're diving into this game, uh, my perspective on on how Friday's contest unfolded, uh, you know, I don't think uh, Enfield, you know, should have processed this game any other way. You know, you mentioned that he expected his bigs to be better. Uh, like you have to, I, I mean, from a, from a USC standpoint, like you have to trust that your big men are going to be able uh, to get the upper hand there. I, you know, with Boogie Ellis, you know, here's the, here's the complicated background that he, the he represents a very complex uh, component of this game in that there was talk during the week that he really wasn't a hundred percent. And of course, midway through the second half, when he was inserted after USC had rallied to, you know, make the game extremely close. He came in for a brief bit and he, and he was then seen grabbing his ankle. So he had to leave the game again. He exaggerated the injury. The big question, the thing that is hard to know for sure is just how diminished he was physically heading into the start of the game. Now, one of the things that uh, adds more complexity to this conversation, Ian, is that the kinds of turnovers that Boogie was making early on they're not the kinds of turnovers that are one would readily associate with, you know, being physically limited. Like it, it, even if your ankle might be a little bit hurt, dr- dribbling into traffic in the midst of Miami's guards and all those quick active hands, uh, that that's not really injury related. Uh, and a lot of the turnovers that USC was committing occurred when a player would, you know, take you take the ball 
in the corner or on the wing, and he tried to dribble toward the elbow, you know, near the paint, uh, you know, around 15 to 20 feet from the basket. He'd dribble in the traffic uh, and would either get the ball swiped or uh, a player would jump in the air. A USC player would jump in the air, make a pass, and realize after committing himself to being in the air, oh, that guy's not cutting in the direction where I expected, or, oh, there's now a Miami guy getting into the passing lane. Most of those turnovers were just jittery. Uh, I don't I don't really associate those turnovers with uh, a tactical approach. Uh, I, I think that to an extent, you know, Boogie Ellis, you know, he needs to freelance a little bit uh, for him to play well on offense. You know, he is a he is a small guard, you know, with a with a reasonably good handle. I mean, he has to be able to navigate through a defense to a certain extent. And he wasn't able to do it. And, you know, so maybe the injury robbed him of a certain degree of burst. But for the most part, I felt that Boogie's turnovers and mistakes in the first half, it was just jittery and and not being on the same page uh, with teammates. So the, the, the passes that USC failed to complete, the passes that Miami deflected and, and eventually stole, they were usually passes no longer than like three or four feet. And it was a case of someone just, you know, trying to make a play, but not really passing with a purpose. You know, like if the pass was a dump down to the low block to set up a layup and, you know, the guy, a USC player had beaten his man or, or had gained the right angle uh, and the pass just, you know, wasn't thrown perfectly. That's one kind of turnover. But these passes were, you know, from the elbow area toward the wings uh, or across the court, they didn't, they weren't setting up shots. They, you know, like this, it's not as though there was a guy wide open for a three and you kick the ball out. No, the, these turnovers uh, just didn't have any kind of purpose. So in terms of my evaluation of Andy Enfield, something I wrote about over the weekend at Trojans wire, you know, I thought, I thought that the first half was just USC being jittery. And it was a, an example of veteran players not being on the same page. You know, they were nervous and, you know, we talk about veterans, but of course, these are college veterans. They're still just 20, 21 years old. And the pressure of the NCAA tournament is still a very real and organic thing, even for a senior. Uh, so, you know, after that awful first half, what we saw in the second half was not just the decision to go with Ethan Anderson and Reese Dixon Waters and bench Boogie and Max Agbank Polo. That obviously took a lot of guts for for Enfield to make that call, uh, as you briefly alluded to, because it's not what USC normally does. Uh, but but beyond that, you what you also saw in the second half is that you didn't see guys dribbling into the paint. You didn't see guys dribbling toward that elbow area. You you saw a little bit of weave action at the top of the key. You know, if, if not necessarily handoffs, but just like easy drop passes. You know, basically a guy just flipping the ball you know, uh, like half a foot or, or half a foot, like a, a half a yard, uh, you know, w- one or two foot passes. Uh, Anderson would just take the ball for, you know, from a guy who was up top. So like it, it was a turnover safe uh, way of, you know, distributing the ball at the top of the key. And so just the actions and the movements of USC's uh, half court offense were structured in a way that they weren't in the first half. And I think if, if Enfield does deserve criticism, uh, it is that, you know, USC should have been just doing those simple handoff style exchanges 
much earlier in the first half, maybe around the under 12 or the under eight media timeout. It shouldn't have taken a full half for that to happen. That, that I can accept as a legitimate criticism of Enfield, but you know, the fact that Boogie Ellis has been a mainstay for this team and uh, mm-hmm. you know, people who are saying he's bad, uh, he had a bad year. I totally disagree. I wouldn't, you know, he didn't have a bad year. It's just that people were expecting, people were expecting Boogie Ellis basically in to be what Benedict Matherin has become for Arizona and what Benedict Matherin was for Arizona against TCU, hitting the 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 30 foot ice veins three pointer to tie the game, dunking all over people, getting the offensive rebound, the putback basket, scoring 30 points. I mean, people were expecting Boogie Ellis to be a superstar, and he wasn't. He, he was a good, solid player, but uh, the expectations were too high. And, you know, the other thing is that if USC is going to get where Arizona is, it needs a Benedict Matherin, not a Boogie Ellis. But that doesn't mean Boogie Ellis was bad for USC. He was part of an NCAA tournament team. He was part of a team that won 25 of its first 29 games. So I, I'm, I can say that Boogie Ellis did not have the season USC fans hoped for. That's absolutely true. He was not everything this program uh, wanted and needed him to be. That's also true. But that's not the same as a bad year. Boogie Ellis had a decent year for USC, but it just didn't have the high-end impact uh, that many people hoped for. And so in this game, if you've, if you've ridden with a, with a player all year, if you, if you have had that ride or die, this is our guy mentality, well, you have to at least give him uh, a first half in which to see what he's capable of. So while Enfield, you know, in retrospect could have, maybe should have used the simpler actions and the simpler structure that Ethan Anderson provided uh, in the second half, while, while it's easy to say and, 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 and reasonable to say that USC should have gone to that simplified offensive structure midway through the first half. Uh, it, it's really hard to, to be too harsh on Enfield for, for doing that because Boogie Ellis was the main man. And in the NCAA tournament, you want to give your, your main man, your starter, a chance to work his way out of a slump, a chance to shake off the early game jitters. Uh, that's really the dynamic with Boogie Ellis. And so, you know, I, it just took a lot of guts for Enfield to bench him at the half, and it led to USC's second half rally. On balance, I think en- Enfield uh, managed this game really well. The, the, you know, we also need to remember in terms of Enfield's coaching, USC was down seven with just under a minute left. Game seemed over. I was thinking it was over. I was about to write, you know, my game-ending column, and then Drew Peterson scores eight points in that final minute. And many people will say, well, hey, why isn't Isaiah Mobley getting the ball? Well, Miami was focused on Isaiah Mobley pretty reasonably, too. And I I remember tweeting that, you know, with with the Miami defense focused on Mobley, Peterson's going to get open shots if he wants them. He just has to make them. That's what happened. And it very nearly uh, created overtime. So, you know, in terms of the chess match, I mean, you know, Jim Laranega got the kind of game that he wanted and Andy Anfield did not. And so when you, when you, when the game is not going the way you want, uh, you know, that it just becomes hard to make the right adjustments as soon as you need to. 
Uh, and uh, that 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 really was the conundrum that, that Enfield faced with Boogie Ellis in this game. You kind of just took the words right out of my mouth because we had talked about when we were previewing this game, we had talked about which would prevail. Would it be USC's bigs? Would it be Miami's five out? And and that sort of comes to the what what the head of what was happening right is is Miami's outward play forced twelve steals uh, and, and live ball steals when they were struggling. I, I was talking about those don't matter if USC threw the ball out of bounds. It didn't matter because they could stop them in a half court offense. So it wasn't really uh, that that big of a deal. The, the big thing for them was to get those quick hand check steals and be able to score in, in transition on the fly. And that's where Miami lives. That is when we go back to the, the idea of this emotional start that I had of, you know, there's everybody that's gone to play basketball in Los Angeles knows L.A. style ball. Everyone that's played in New York knows New York style ball and they know it versus Brooklyn style ball. What you saw there was Miami basketball. Like that's what Miami does. When you go to any pickup court, any middle school in South Florida, you will see exactly what that game was. And so the fact that they were able to play true to Miami is, is really it. We, we didn't know who would prevail in the style battle. That was really going to be it. So if it gives USC fans any solace, I don't think that it's USC playing bad. I think it's more Miami playing to their self and who they are and and being able to play that Piscataway turned snowbird style of basketball that, you know, South Florida just embraces. And, and so I don't think that it's that USC lost it. I think Miami won it. And, and that really shouldn't bother USC too much moving forward. And I think that there's no reason to not think that they can't be competitive next season as well. Sure. And I think, you know, you know, what Miami hopefully taught USC and Andy Enfield is just the centrality of, of guard play. And I've already talked about it, so there's no need to, to rehash it too much. I just hope that, you know, kind of the message gets through to Andy Enfield, given that, you know, we know that he recruits defense and size and length, mostly in the front court, and that hopefully this is the eye opener for him to recruit more dynamic guards in the backcourt. Just one more note about how this game unfolded on Friday. Isaiah Mobley missed two free throws early in the game. Uh, and I remarked at the time at the tweeting, live tweeting at the Trojans Wire account that those two missed free throws, I thought, were very crucial uh, in terms of setting a tone and setting a style of play. Because, you know, if you're a big man and you're missing free throws, that negates whatever size advantage you have that that limits the effectiveness or the desirability of playing in the paint. Like, you know, if you're going to get fouled or if you're going to slug it out in the paint, you need to make the free throws when you're fouled. And so I felt that after those two missed free throws, Mobley reverted to uh, his face up style, trying to hit three pointers, trying to hit jump shots, trying to draw Sam Wardenberg. 
uh, out to the three-point line, and I just felt that was not the right play for Mobley in this game. But he needed to feast inside, and when he missed those two free throws, it took him, you know, mentally, it took him away from the inside game, and that's why, you know, it took him about, what, 25 to 30 minutes until he finally scored, finally saw the ball go through the basket, finally got into a bit of a groove. Um, you know, when, when you, when your three point shots don't fall and Mobley missed several three point shots early, you need to go to the basket and, 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 you know, coaches emphasize that not just because, uh, you know, the three point shot is a lower percentage shot, but this is true for most scores, uh, at any level of basketball, you need to see the ball go through the hoop. And the best way to see the ball go through the hoop is either to, to get a layup or dunk or get fouled and go to the free throw line. So when Isaiah Mobley missed those free throws, it, it prevented him from seeing the ball go through the basket. And it's why, you know, he w- took so long uh, to get into this game. And it's, it's why the margins were so small for USC. I, I agree with you. And especially allowing Wardenberg to play on the perimeter, I think, improved his game. Uh, that, that really almost siloed it and allowed those blocks, those, those late shot clock blocks that he was able to get. Um, so Mobley having that trepidation really allowed Sam Wardenberg to play well above the level that we've normally seen him and match him in a way that really put USC uh, uh, in a difficult position. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in terms of other observations from this game, we have, we, we haven't talked much about this, but it's certainly worth noting that, um, that when USC went with re- and, and Enfield went with Reese Dixon waters, uh, in the second half, and uh, this, now this guy is going to be the centerpiece. Or, I was going to say, he was so good. <laughs> he's going to be, amazed. yeah, he's, I mean, he's definitely going to be a centerpiece of this team. He's going to get extended minutes. Um, and, and, you know, let's, let's real talk here as well. Boogie Ellis is likely to transfer out of the program. I mean, it's not a done deal. It's not a guarantee, but, you know, given everything that transpired, uh, in the second half, and I know that Boogie had the, the, the injured ankle, which, you know, played a factor certainly down the stretch, but before the, the he aggravated the ankle injury, you know, Enfield made the decision to go with Ethan Anderson and Dixon Waters, uh, in, in for most of the second half in the backcourt. So Dixon Waters is going to be, you know, he's going to play over 30 minutes a game next season, no doubt in my mind. And, the, you know, we saw in that second half the ingredients that USC usually lacked this season, that Dixon Waters, you know, in terms of being a catch-and-shoot uh, three-point shooter, in terms of being able to get to the foul line, uh, you know, he was one of the better players for USC this season when he did play at getting to the foul line because, and, and why, because he's a bigger guard. And that brings up another point with USC needing to improve its guard play. It's not just having good guards though. Like I'll take whatever elite guard is out there. Uh, you know, Jordan McLaughlin was, has been the, is the one really great point guard Andy Enfield had back in the mid two thousands or mid 2010s, 2016, 2017. And he's a, he's a small guard, but he was an elite guard. You know, he, he commanded the game the way a USC guard needs to. But, you know, if I if I had my absolute number one preference, I wouldn't just want Jordan McLaughlin. I'd want Jordan McLaughlin plus four or five inches. I'd want a big guard uh, who not only can control a game, but who 
uh, can shoot over the top of defenders, has more size and power so that he can finish through contact and draw fouls. And you see that with Reese Dixon Waters, that he brings those added offensive ingredients to the table. So that that's the one really, really big uh, bright spot for a team where, you know, in my mind, a lot of transfer changes uh, are likely to come. I mean, it's possible that Joshua Morgan, the backup big, could transfer out of the program. I would actually hope that he stays because uh, USC is going to need his his size and length for 20 minutes a game. You know, Chavez Goodwin's likely uh, has played his last collegiate game. Drew Peterson has likely played his last collegiate game. We'll see uh, wh- where he goes and what decision uh, he makes. Um, but, you know, there are going to be a lot of changes. But the, the one thing that seems almost certain is that Reese Dixon Waters is going to play a lot of minutes and he's going to be very good, provided that he's healthy. I liked him a lot. I thought that he really changed the pace of the game. He was able to run with the Canes. He was able to, to keep it going um, where, where USC was trying to muddy the waters. Like we talked about that rock fight that you like to, to reference that he was able to, to say, nah, we can, I can run too. And, and that was like an interesting change of pace. I, I really liked it. Yeah, no, he, he was dynamic. He was special. And uh, he certainly brings something extra to the table uh, for USC. So, okay. um, you know, as we as we briefly look ahead to USC, and I know that, hey, we'll get to Miami-Auburn in just a second, but as we look ahead to, to next season, um, you know, and I, of course, we haven't talked about the fact that, you know, Isaiah Mobley is going to enter uh, the NBA draft. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, he hasn't announced officially, but, uh, you know, almost certain to enter the NBA draft. And I think that you know, if he began the year or maybe, uh, you know, in early February when he was playing great, uh, he looked like a lottery pick, you know, probably a back end lottery pick, like top, you know, top four, 12, maybe 12 to 14, somewhere in there. And then he suffered the broken nose on February 5th uh, against Arizona. And it's just unfortunate for USD fans, but it has to be taken into when, when we measure this full season. Uh, that's part of the unfortunate story uh, authored by the Trojans is that they were brutally unlucky in the final month with injuries. You know, D- Dixon Waters missed the UCLA uh, Pac-12 tournament game. Isaiah White was never able to get healthy and play 15, 20 minutes a, a game down the stretch. That, that you know, you, remember, he went off against Oregon in the Sweet 16 one year ago, if USC has a healthy Isaiah White, this team's ceiling uh, is a lot higher. If USC had Isaiah White available, the Trojans could have achieved a lot more. But uh, back to Isaiah Mobley, that broken nose just halted the flow of his season. And we can safely say he wasn't the same player uh, after that injury. You know, he had a he had a two week layoff pretty much. Uh, in the middle of February, and he tried to get back into rhythm, uh, had some moments here and there, but, you know, he wasn't the same dynamic force that he was for this team uh, in in late January uh, on into, you know, the, the Arizona State game uh, in early February. And, in for, and for most of that Arizona game, you know, which USC led by five points with about six minutes left. So, you know, a, a, as much as people might want to say that USC – uh, faltered or maybe lost steam. Um, 
you know, there's something to that. Like there's certainly some truth there that this team played its best basketball in February, didn't play its best basketball in March, but injuries had a lot to do with that. You know, this team was fighting uphill even when it was succeeding. I mean, you're, you're aware of this, that USC was winning one close game after another. It's not as though it was dominating opponents. The margins were always small. Uh, it's why this team still overachieved. Like, you know, a team without Evan Mobley going 25 and four after that win at Oregon on the Drew Peterson shot uh, at the very end of the game. I, mean, I said, you know, at that at the time that this was an overachieving team. So the fact that USC goes into March and loses to UCLA uh, twice and Arizona. Well, hey, those are two sweet 16 teams. They both have a legitimate shot to make the final four. And now we see Miami not just uh, beating USC, but dump trucking Auburn, a really good team. So like USC did fall off the pace in March, but USC didn't lose to chumps. USC lost to high quality teams. Uh, and so we, and now we just see where the Trojans need to get better. We see the, the areas where the Trojans have to improve. And now it's up to Andy Enfield and his staff to make some magic in the transfer portal and to reshuffle this roster in a way that will set up USC well for 2023. Yeah, I think that there are like interesting options if, if people do decide to stay for another year or so. Um, that, that like, you know, Caleb Love from UNC, it, it, it could possibly, I don't, I don't want to do this game, but, and throw people out. I probably shouldn't have done that, but, I'm just saying, like, I, I think the USC could be active in the transfer portal, but I also think that it might not be bad for Isaiah Mobley to return for an, for one more ride at this. If he's not a first-rounder, which, like, at this point, you don't really see him as one, why, why not just come back and see what you can do? Um, I, I think that there are options there to be had and, and to look at the transfer portal and, and who is going to move where. Um, I, I think that people uh, underestimate. I mean, especially look, like let's even look at Miami, right? If, if we're having this conversation, let's leave. Charlie Moore. Miami. Yeah, look at Charlie Moore. And Charlie Moore and, and, and Cam Agusti. And I, I mean, like all of these guys, like, they, 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 they moved all around the place. So um, I don't think that USC can't be right back where they were, if not even better, if Andy Enfield, who has proven that he can get this working, um, I, I don't think that it's, it's a far off to think about. I, I don't think that it's all doom oh. and gloom that like everybody's oh. going to be leaving. Well, I mean, th there are going to be some departures. It's just that, and, and Enfield did show, he showed with the 2021 team, like, uh, you know, the, the 2022 team has, tr is, you know, mostly, well, significantly comprised of transfers that came the year before. Drew Peterson transferred from Rice, uh, Chavez Goodwin transfer from Wofford. Uh, so, you know, core components of this team, were, they were already in place last year, but they came through the transfer portal. And that 2021 Elite Eight team also had Taj Edey, a transfer from Santa Clara. So Isaiah White, transfer from Utah Valley. So and Enfield has shown that he can assemble uh, 
you know, a, a, a roster with transfers. But of course, the, the, the nuance here is that in 2021, he was able to put transfers around Evan Mobley. Now, 2023, you know, you know, we have to see what, you know, I know USC has a highly rated recruiting class, but, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, you're going to find the next Evan Mobley. You know, there, there, there isn't a next Evan Mobley, but, you know, in terms of the, the highly rated re- recruits that are coming in, you can't assume they're going to reach, you know, the kind of status uh, that Evan Mobley reached in 2021. So I would say that there is a question mark in terms of the transfer, the the caliber of transfer being uh, better than 2021, because I think it will need to be. I mean, 2021 was very good. No, no question about it. Uh, But I think that the the caliber of transfer uh, in 2023 is going to need to be better, especially in the backcourt. That that's going to be one of the big uh, question marks. For, for USC. Now, now, Ian, I do want to, you know, th- part of this podcast again is, you know, giving you your flowers, giving you your, your bouquet, you know, in recognition of your special moment at <laughs> Miami. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's in recognition partly just for you as a person, but also because you do so much for this podcast. Oh, thank you. Man. The game, the game against Auburn, like what, what do you think that Mac game magnified not just in relationship to USC, but also in terms of what it says about what Miami can be as a basketball program uh, in the future. Uh, I, I think in terms of USC, both, both of those teams would have beaten Auburn. Um, I, I, and I think I said as much last week on, on the show. Um, you I, did. I, what, what, what was that? You did. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really – I was more worried about USC than I was about Auburn. And, and – that's not because I didn't think Auburn was a talented team. I was a little worried about Jabari Smith, like a little bit, but not as much as Isaiah Mobley in a weird way. Um, I, I thought that Miami played better against USC than they did against Auburn. And it was like the, the final score of that Auburn game doesn't really reflect how Poorly, they were playing at the time. Um, in in my household, I was uh, white knuckled for a lot more of the Auburn game than I was the USC game. I felt like Miami was playing more themselves against USC than they did against Auburn, and I know that the box score does not reflect that. Um, but I I just felt like that was more of an identity and. If, if they play more of that USC-style game, then they'll advance through this tournament. If they play more of that Auburn-style game, they, they can't beat Kansas or Providence and probably can't beat Iowa State. So, well, what, well, what, so what, what did Miami not do as well against Auburn compared to U, the USC game? Yeah, they didn't get as many turnovers. The two bigs hurt them, which made me think of how you talked about Chavez Goodwin. And I went back and watched the game. And, and I thought if Chavez and Mobley had played that two big style more often, then I think USC would have done a little bit better against everything in the first half. They went away from it. They tried to play to whatever Miami did. Miami didn't get as many of those easy, quick swiping turnovers that we've talked so much about. Um, and, and so it just, it looked a little different. 
I, I, Miami had to set up in their half court, which they don't like to do as much. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's really where I looked at the Auburn game. However, I will say, I mean, Auburn was at one time this season, the number one team in the nation. So beating the number one team in the nation, like not for nothing comes with some respect and some honor and some dignity. Um, especially in the NCAA tournament to earn a spot in sweet 16. So I'm happy about that. I would prefer them to play more of the USC game than they did the Auburn game is, is I guess what I would say. Well, now wasn't now. So if, if Miami was more half court oriented against Auburn, which is not, you know, exactly how Miami basketball is played. And, you know, when you say Miami basketball, you're not talking about the, U. you're talking about the city of Miami. Yeah. Uh, but um, like, th- doesn't that seem to be a response to not wanting a frenetic pace? Because as much as Miami wants to run, Bruce Pearl wants to run more. Like Bruce Pearl wants a chaotic 94-foot game, so Larinaga didn't want to give that to, to Bruce Pearl. Um, may- yeah, maybe. That's not, that's, not, that's not a bad point. Um, I, like Miami basketball is just – relentless it's it's not 40 minutes of hell like arkansas has but it it's more of it doesn't matter if you're three feet out or 30 feet out it's the same level of pressure and so and and it's the same level of like swiping basketball that's why against usc you saw some so many of those uh jump past turnovers that usc had that's why you saw so many of those like swiping steals in the paint that you would expect uh beyond the arc right like it's very much like all in your face no matter what and so to to be a little bit more uh on the back foot and just allow the pressure to come to you isn't really true to city of miami like you had said correctly basketball the city of miami basketball is that charlie moore steal where he jumps in front of it catch it uh, 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 or, or swipes in front of it and gets the easy layup city of miami basketball is that kim augusty steal where he jumped in front of the pass and got it and threw it really far ahead for an easy two on one that they had um th- that's more like what if you play a pickup game around here that's what you'll see and so that's where you, when you see that style, you're like, all right, I've played against these guys. This is cool. When you see the way that they played against Auburn, you're like, well, all right, it's working. So I'm happy about that. But this yeah. isn't who we are. So, so I think to refine your point, it's not so much that Miami played better against USC, but Miami played closer to the Miami aesthetic against USC. Correct. Uh, and that against Auburn, it was actually a great chess move by Larinaga to allow Auburn to implode. Like, uh, you know, Auburn's guards, they will chuck up the threes. They will hoist those 35-foot shots, and that's bad offense. But, like, so Miami didn't get the steal and the fast-break bucket, but Auburn took terrible shots. Uh, the other the other part we haven't mentioned about the Miami-Auburn game, just to kind of draw a, a comparison with USC – you know, Isaiah Mobley didn't, you know, play this game in the low post, not not most of the way at any rate. Auburn's Walker Kessler, who is bigger and taller than, than Isaiah Mobley. I mean, Sam Wardenberg holds Walker Kessler to two points uh, that, that an absolutely tre- he is. Wardenberg had an absolutely tremendous 
uh, weekend in Greenville playing defense against Isaiah Mobley and then Walker Kessler. That's been a huge part of Miami's success at this tournament. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Wardenburg has played better than he has the entire year combined um, and should get all the accolades that he deserves from how well he's played. I mean, I would put him all tournament right now. Isaiah Wong should be up in, in that regard as well right now. Um, what I, the, the easiest way that I would put it is Miami beat USC. Like they played their best and it took their best to barely cross the finish line. Miami allowed Auburn to lose and yep. that's how they beat Auburn. I agree. I agree. I think that that's the great way to frame it. Well, Ian, um, I just want to say again, congratulations. You richly deserve it. Uh, you know, I speak for USC fans and saying that, you know, the foul call on Ethan Anderson at the end, an unfortunate <laughs> way to lose that game. But, you know, we, we get into these things all the time that when a game comes down to one foul call, the lesson is you could have done so many other things over the course of the game to not put yourself in position uh, to lose on one foul call. Uh, and, you know, Miami, I think was the better team for most of this game. You know, USC obviously had a slight lead early in the second half, but, you know, Miami led by seven with almost a minute left. It, it would have been absolutely remarkable for the Trojans to steal this game uh, in the end. They almost did, but, you know, Charlie Moore uh, owned that final minute and he, and he was the best player on the floor of this game. So Ian, to the victors go the spoils. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know I'll, just speaking for myself, I really hope you get that first Elite Eight uh, in program history on Friday. Uh, you know, we at USC, we want, our we want to get to our first Final Four since 1954, almost 70 years now. So we know what it means to walk in the wilderness as a basketball program. You know what that means. That's why this is such a, uh, a satisfying and poignant moment for you. So I hope that Miami rides this as far as it can go, but certainly beating Iowa State to get to that first Elite Eight. I hope that the Canes uh, can deliver that to you and South Florida in this NCAA tournament. Thank you, my friend. I, I, I uh, Like I said last week, as the fates would allow it, as the stars would align, uh, I, I didn't think it would be up against USC, and I take no happiness in it uh for for all of those who are still listening and i i just uh uh look forward to whatever it, it, whatever possibilities may happen that is a lovely note on which to finish our podcast produced by miami alumnus ian hest uh a, a great miami and usc themed show and we congratulate Andy Enfield and the 2022 USC Trojans for what was a very good season. Let's remember this. Most regular season wins in the entire history of USC Trojans men's basketball. Looking forward to a very big offseason with some significant transfer portal acquisitions. And we're also looking forward to how Lindsey Gottlieb uh, develops uh, the women of Troy uh, in women's basketball, building on her first season laying a foundation for success. So folks, we, we thank you not just for listening to the show, but also for listening to our extensive coverage of USC basketball over these past few months. You know, this is a football school. We don't need to uh, explain that. 
but we do want to cover the basketball programs to give them their due, to give them their recognition, precisely because we don't want to treat basketball as kind of the lonely orphan. We want to treat basketball as a significant part uh, of the athletic department, of the USC family, of the USC experience. We really hope you've enjoyed our coverage. But of course, now uh, with spring practice beginning, we are going to then turn our attention back to USC football. We'll have some NCAA tournament coverage, some Pac-12 uh, March Madness coverage uh, in, in the next few weeks. But uh, USC football back on the radar screen. We know that's the deal uh, for the next several months. So just as kind of we pass the torch from basketball back to football, we want to thank you in a special way for listening to our coverage here on Trojans Wired of USC basketball uh, this past winter. For Ian Hest, uh, whom we congratulate on his uh, Hurricanes magnificent achievement, this is Matt Zemek. We'll see you next week on Trojans Wired. (laughs) 